Well, good morning, church family. Happy New Year to all of you who are here and to any of you who will watch later on uh, on the, uh, the YouTube channel. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Pastor Chris. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. And if you uh, haven't seen me around a ton, it's because I usually hang with these folks here in the front row. Uh, usually I'm the, the youth pastor here. Um, and it's, uh, it's my privilege this morning to, uh, to get to share God's word uh, with you. And uh, so if, um, if you would, please go ahead and open up your Bibles to Exodus 34. That's where we're going to be reading this morning. Exodus 34, verses 1 through 9. Exodus 34, 1 through 9. And this is what God's word says. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone, like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. I always think that that phrase is kind of funny. <laughs> Be ready in the morning and come up in the, uh, in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. And so Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning, and he went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is God's word. Father, we thank you for this passage. We ask that you would make your word swift, Lord, that it would move from our ears to our hearts, and Lord, that it would move from our hearts to the rest of our lives, that our lives would be conformed to your word, that we would live lives for your glory, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. It's been said that if you want to know where a person's heart is, we only need to listen to what he or she says, because in reality, we are putting the heart's secrets and treasures on display much of the time, indeed, more often than we realize. Now, that is a quote from a book called With All Your Heart, and in the chapter, the author is unpacking really the, the idea uh, that the Lord Jesus explained uh, to his disciples when he said, out of the heart, the mouth 
speaks. So there is a sense in which our words reveal who we are. There's a sense in which our words uh, reveal something of our heart to the people around us. And just as this is true for those of us who are created in the image of God, so also this is true of God himself. When God speaks to us through his word, it is as though he is laying bare his heart to us. It is as though he is revealing who he is to us. However, sadly, you've, if you've walked with Jesus for any uh, length of time, you know that sometimes we begin to stop listening over time when God is speaking to us. It's really easy to take for granted this amazing gift that God has given us in his word. It's really easy to not pay attention. It's really easy to not seek a further knowledge of this God who made us and loves us. A.W. Tozer, in his book, uh, The Pursuit of God, he, he put his finger on this exact issue And he said this, he said that when this happens, we have been snared in the coils, so like a serpent, right? Snared in the coils of a spurious logic, which says that if we have found him, we need no more seek him. Now this perspective, I think of it, uh, if you can think of it this way, it would be a little bit like a, a husband who, uh, who comes to his wife one day and uh, he says, you know, honey, we've been together for a long time and uh, I've got you figured out. I know exactly what you're thinking all the time. In fact, I know what you're going to say before you even say it. Now, any married man in the room knows that that would be silly because the female mind, as we know, is an enigma wrapped in a mystery hidden deep in the recesses of a Rubik's Cube. We will never figure it out. That's why marriage is for life. We get a whole lifetime to try. (laughs) But if we cannot figure out our spouses, why would we think that we have plumbed the depths of the infinite God? Why would we think that we can exhaust the one who is inexhaustible? There is always going to be new things that God is going to be teaching us about himself every time we open the word. And even when you think about when we are in eternity with God, we will not know him exhaustively. We will be continually knowing more of his glory, continually learning more of his grace, more of his kindness, more of his mercy, on and on and on, ever increasing in our knowledge of and enjoyment of God. And we get the unique privilege as Christians to begin that process of knowing God in the here and now. God has called us into a relationship with himself, and he desires for us to know him. And that's really what this passage that we've just read is about. So I'll give you a little bit of context here. I don't know if you know this, but Exodus 34 
comes after Exodus 33, okay? Uh, so in Exodus 33, there is a verse that where it's, it's describing a conversation that Moses is having with God. And in Exodus 33:18, Moses cries out to the Lord and he says, God, show me your glory. He says, God, show me who you are. And Exodus 34 is the response. Exodus 34 is essentially God saying, okay, Moses, you want to know who I am? I'll tell you. And so this morning, what I want us to be thinking about, our, our main, main point is this. Knowing God as he is requires believing everything about himself that he says. Knowing God as he is requires believing everything about himself that he says. And if that's true, we should ask of the totality of Scripture, but specifically this morning, we should ask, what is it that God has revealed about himself to us through this passage? And there are three things that God has revealed about himself, three attributes that we are going to talk about this morning. But before we do that, I would like to give just a brief, a brief word where uh, more of an encouragement, really. Here's what I don't want. I don't want you to walk away from this message and walk away from this passage with three new facts that you lock up in a theological box and put on the shelf, okay? I want my hope and prayer, for myself included, is that these three attributes that we learn about God from this passage is that they would become living realities in our hearts. Amen? that we wouldn't just hear these attributes of God and just log them away, but rather that they would become a part of our conception of who He is, and that they would inform our relationship with Him. So what are the three things? The three things that we are going to talk about this morning, the three attributes are first, the holiness of God, second, the kindness of God, and third, the justice of God. Or if you want to put it another way, what we're going to learn about God this morning is that God is holy, God is kind, and God is just. Okay, let's talk about that first one, the holiness of God. If you look with me for a minute at verse 3, this is what it says. It says, no one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain, and let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. And so in this first section, God begins by giving Moses some instructions regarding replacing the two tablets that he broke at the foot of Mount Sinai back in Exodus 32. But these, these instructions are, are interesting because what God says to Moses is he says, don't let anyone come up the mountain with you. And what this is communicating to God's covenant people is that they, they, God may not just be approached in a, a willy-nilly fashion. 
The, the, these people may not just waltz into the presence of a holy God. God is the one who dictates the terms of how and when he may be approached. And what's interesting is this actually, this is not the first time that God has actually given this commandment. If you look back in Exodus 19, when Moses first went up on Mount Sinai, when he's receiving the Ten Commandments from the Lord, the, the Lord said this. He says, and you shall set limits for the people, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or to touch the edge of it, for whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, wow, that sounds really harsh. What's, what's going on there? Well, T. Desmond Alexander uh, wrote a book called The City of God and the Goal of Creation. And in there, he has a little, a little helpful section that kind of describes what's going on. The period between the, the exodus, the coming out of Egypt, and in the, that period between uh, the exodus and the construction of the tabernacle, for all intents and purposes, Mount Sinai functioned like the tabernacle. It functioned like the meeting place between God and man. And just as, uh, you know, you couldn't just waltz right into the Holy of Holies, so also people could not just march up the mountain into the presence of a holy God. And so what God is communicating through Moses to his people is a couple things. One, he is communicating that, that his people that they need to have a reverence for his holiness. They need to have a reverence for God's holiness. And he's also communicating that by implication, they should have an awareness of their own sinfulness. An awareness of his holiness as well as an awareness of their own sinfulness. In fact, we can think of the relationship between a holy God and sinful people a little bit like the relationship between gasoline and fire. Gasoline cannot come into contact with fire without being consumed. The New Testament tells us that God is a consuming fire. Therefore, sinful people may not come into contact with a holy God without being consumed, unless God makes a way, unless God prepares a mediator. And in this particular Old Testament instance, Moses is that mediator. He is the one who stands in the gap between the people and God, he, he uh, mediates that relationship. But we know that Moses was ultimately, as the author of Hebrews tells us, just a type or a pointer to the true, mediate, to the true mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. But what God is communicating through Moses to the people is his holiness. And that message remains the same today 
for you and me as God's covenant people here at Hope Community Church. Through this passage, God is communicating to us that he is holy and that sin is a serious thing. And so we should be asking ourselves, as followers of Jesus, is it our desire to reflect the holiness of God? Is it our desire to reflect God's character? The Lord Jesus said, be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. And so as we are thinking about uh, reflecting on 2023, and as we are thinking about goals for 2024, we should ask ourselves, is it our goal in 2024 to be more holy than in 2023? Or have we slipped into neutral and are we coasting? You might ask yourself, well, what, is it, what does it look like for someone to be holy? What, what, what might the attitude of someone who is pursuing holiness be? Well, that attitude would ultimately be humility. The kind of person who is going to grow in holiness is the kind of person who's going to say that my sin is the biggest problem in my life. My own sinful thoughts, desires, and actions are the biggest problem in my life. It's not the situation, it's not the location, it's not the relationships in my life. The biggest issue is my own sin. I can have, all, I can have it really rough in all of those other areas, but if I have God, and if God is at work in me, I can live a holy life, even if everything is really, really difficult in life. So ask yourself that this year. Is it your desire to grow in holiness? But also recognize that the, the desire to grow in holiness really comes from belief in the gospel. It really comes from recognizing that the Lord Jesus is the ultimate and consummate example of holiness. He is the one who laid down his life for you and has loved you so deeply. And our holiness, our living a life that is separate from sin and devoted to God is a response to that love that Jesus has shown for us on the cross. So we see the holiness of God. Second, we see the kindness of God of God, the kindness of God. Look with me at verse six, where it says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for, a th for thousands, or some translations say to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This little section here has been called God's self-revelation. And God begins this self-revelation with five phrases, five phrases 
that explain his kindness, that further uh, detail in what way the Lord is kind to his people. And the way that he begins is actually a little bit surprising because he begins with the phrase merciful and gracious. Now, that should shock us because when we think about who is talking here, we think about the fact that this is God, the God who created all things, who simply spoke and the universe and everything that exists came into being through this God. This God could have described himself as I am the Lord great and mighty and majestic, and all of those things are true. But yet, the way that he describes himself to Moses is he says, Moses, I am merciful and gracious. And in doing so, what he is saying to Moses, he says that my nature is compassionate and caring and that that compassionate and caring nature expresses itself in showing grace and mercy to foolish, wicked people. But as if that wasn't enough, he goes on and he says that not only is he merciful and gracious, but he says that he is slow to anger. This speaks of the Lord's patience the Lord's patience towards his people. You see, God's anger is not like my anger. It's probably not like your anger, if you're anything like me, where it's like with just some of the smallest provocations, you go go from zero to 60, and you're just like, ah! God's not like that. He's slow to anger. He's patient with us. But not only that, Then he describes himself as abounding or literally translated great in steadfast love and mercy. Now these phrases, steadfast love, excuse me, steadfast love and faithfulness, these phrases, they ultimately speak of God's covenantal, faithful love. The kind of love that is unconditional. The kind of love that is always faithful. But not only that, he adds to it a phrase where he says, keeping steadfast love to a thousand generations, or for thousands, which ultimately points to the fact that God is not only covenantally faithful in that present moment at that particular time, but he is always faithful, that he continues to be faithful because that is who he is is. But he doesn't stop there. This is amazing. He doesn't stop there. He says, he also says that I am the God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, which ultimately speaks to the fact that forgiveness is bound up in the very heart of God. I think sometimes in my, in my own imagination, especially as a young believer, uh, I had this, this, conversa- this imaginary conversation happening in my mind between God the Father and God the Son, where Jesus is like, now, Father, you have to love him because I died for him. And the Father's like, mm, I guess, but I'm not gonna give him too many blessings. I had this, 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 this feeling that, that maybe the only reason God loved me 
was because Jesus died for me. But in reality, the work of redemption is a work of the triune God. The Father so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son. And Jesus went willingly. And the Spirit applies that work of Jesus to the bride, to God's people. Now the reason that these five phrases would be so important is because the Israelites had just made a huge mistake prior to this. In Exodus 32, you, you guys will probably remember, it's the story of the golden calf. So Moses is up on the mountain, he's communing with the Lord, and the people are down at the foot of the mountain with Aaron, and the people are like, you know, that Moses guy, he's been gone a long time. Uh, we think you should make us a god. And Aaron, rather than saying, that's a dumb idea, was like, oh, okay. Right? So he goes ahead and he says, give me all your gold and all of these, you know, the, the jewelry and things like that. And then he fashions this golden calf and he says, behold, the God who brought you out of the land of slavery. And while all, when this is happening, Moses comes down and he's like, I, I imagine him getting ready to pull his hair out, right? And he, at that moment, he breaks the tablets at the foot of Mount Sinai because he sees that the people are already breaking the law that God had given to them. And so it's in the face of that failure, in the face of that open, bold-faced rebellion that God declares to Moses and to his covenant people, I am gracious and merciful. I am slow to anger. I am abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I keep that steadfast love to a thousand generations and I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the God that you and I get to have a relationship with. This is amazing. So my question for us, as we are thinking about this, this kindness of God, one of the things that I have observed in my own life and that I have observed in the lives of other people is that sometimes it's hard to believe in the kindness of God. Is this true to experience for you guys too? Sometimes we look at a particular situation, we look at uh, maybe a broken relationship, we look at uh, maybe a, uh, the loss of a job, and we look at all of those circumstances and we say, God, how is this kind? How is this showing me your kindness? And what this passage points us to is ultimately not circumstances, but what has God said about himself? Because that is what we need to hold on to. That is what we need to cling to. What is it that God has revealed about himself, not only in his word, but also what is it that he has revealed about himself in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ? Going to the cross, paying the penalty for our sins so that we could have our sins forgiven and have a, a relationship with God restored. God has given us everything in Christ. And that 
is what we need to think about when we struggle to believe in the kindness of God. Amen? So not only do we see the kindness of God in this passage, not only do we see the holiness of God, but we also see the justice of God, the one that makes some of us uncomfortable. But we're going to talk about it anyway. The justice of God. Look at the latter part of verse 7. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And after Moses hears all this, he bows his head, verse 8, toward the earth and he worships God. The last attribute that God reveals is his justice. And the way that God describes his justice is he says that he will by no means clear the guilty. In other words, he will not let sin go unpunished. He will not let sin slide because if he does, he will cease to be a God of justice. But there's another phrase in here that sometimes is a little bit troubling to us and and has actually caused some strange doctrines to pop up in the church. And it's the phrase, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, a cursory reading of that will make us think, well, it kind of sounds like he's saying that he's gonna punish the children for the sins of the parents and the grandparents. But what we have to do is we have to recognize that we believe not only in sola scriptura, like scripture alone, but also tota scriptura, the totality of scripture. And God will not contradict himself. And in Ezekiel chapter 18, God says this. He says, the son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. So whatever this phrase means, we know that it can't mean that God is going to punish the children for the sins of the parent. So what does it mean? Well, scholars and theologians and people who like to hear themselves talk have all uh, come, come to a couple of conclusions that are the most, most common for how to interpret uh, this, this particular little phrase. Uh, The first is really um, the way that they would describe it is that this is just describing the consequences of sin. And what if you can if you can think of it this way, there is a sense in which the sinful thoughts, desires, and actions of the parent impacts the people closest to them in a big way. Like, we have all experienced this, maybe as parents, we have, you know, been uh, angry or impatient, and we have seen the effect that that has had on our kids. So that, that's kind of the first option, is that this could be just talking about the, the natural consequences, the, the ripple effect of sin in the life of a family. Now, I don't think that that's actually what this is talking about, but that is one option 
that, uh, that has been presented. I think the second one is probably more likely. And that's first comes from recognizing that this phrase to the third and fourth generation, it conveys this idea of continuation, okay? And so a way of understanding this would be that God is saying that if each generation, each successive generation continues in rebellion against him, then each generation will experience his justice. And I think that that interpretation is actually confirmed when we go back to Exodus chapter 20 because a very similar phrase is used to the third and fourth generation, but God adds to it, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So it seems that what's being talked about here is God's distribution of justice on those who are living in rebellion against him. Make sense? Okay. So I think, I think that is probably the more likely interpretation of the two. But the justice of God is not always uh, something that we are necessarily uh, comfortable with but it, it's actually a really, really good doctrine for us to believe. Recently, I, uh, I recall seeing a, uh, a meme. Now, for those of you who don't know what a meme is, I'll, let me explain it to you. Um, a meme is a picture, and they usually, usually it's from like a movie or a TV show or something like that. Um, and there's usually a caption that's imposed on the, the top, right? And so the caption of this particular one said, when the pastor brings the donuts to the Bible study. And this particular pastor looked at the phrase that was on the donut box and, and thought that it was theologically incorrect. You see, what the donut box said was, you deserve a donut. And the pastor looked at that and said, no, you don't. And so he got a Sharpie and he crossed out the phrase, a donut, and entered in the words, H-E-L-L, so that the inscription would then read, you deserve hell. Now, I share that because it's a, a, a silly uh, reminder that every single one of us ultimately deserves God's justice. That is what our sin deserves. We deserve punishment for our sin because sin at the most foundational level, choosing sin is rejecting God. Choosing sin is rejecting God, whether momentarily or habitually. If we choose sin, we are essentially choosing something over God. And that action warrants the justice of God. And so the justice of God is actually a really good doctrine for us to believe, a really good doctrine for us to to actually rejoice in because what it ultimately communicates to us is that God is fair, that he is not, there's no unfairness, there's no partiality with 
God. And the doctrine of God's justice is something that should actually pervade our consciousness as Christians for a couple reasons. One, knowing that God is a God of justice helps us when we look at all of the horrific things that are going on in the world, when we look at all of the evil and the injustice that is happening, knowing that God is a God of justice allows us to recognize that in the end, everything that is wrong God is going to make it right. But not only does it help us when we look at, at all of the, the issues that are going on out there, but the doctrine of God's justice actually helps us in our personal relationships as well. Because every single one of us will experience being sinned against at some point. And so believing that God is a God of justice allows us to recognize that if the person who sinned against us is never repents, is not a believer, God will deal with them in the end. But if that person is a believer, the doctrine of God's justice allows us to believe that God takes that sin against you so seriously that Jesus died to pay the penalty for that sin. God is a God of justice. And the reality is that no sin gets swept under the rug. No thoughtless word or careless deed is ignored. Everything is either punished in the eternal torment of hell or on the cross of Christ. So my question for us is we're thinking about how is it that we, uh, how is it that we apply this, this, this doctrine of God's justice? Think about your own life and your own, the relationships that you have, whether it's a spouse or a child or a coworker. Ask yourself, does, does believing in the doctrine of God's justice allow you to freely offer forgiveness to the people in your life. Because the reality is, is that when we harbor unforgiveness in our hearts, there is, in some sense, a subconscious disbelief that God is a God of justice and that he will do right in the end. So we must believe that God is a God of justice so that we can be the kind of people who forgive as we have been forgiven. I'll uh, finish with this. Recently, I was, uh, I was speaking with a, a friend who uh, spent a whole career in, uh, in law enforcement. And uh, one of the things that he was telling me is that while he, was, while he was in law enforcement, he received the honor of being invited to train at a very uh, special training seminar with the FBI. And while he was there, uh, one of the things that he learned was that uh, he should, if at all possible, try and get a written account of the events from a suspect. Because through that written account, 
the motivations and the intentions of the heart come out through the words. And we have just spent these last few moments reading God's words. And it is as though God has opened his heart to us and he has said, Hope Community Church, this is what I am like. This is what I am like. I am gracious and merciful. I am slow to anger. I am abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But I will by no means clear the guilty. This is the God that you and I get to have a relationship with. But there is a little bit of a tension that is raised by this passage. How is it that God can be a God of justice and a God of mercy? How is it that he can forgive iniquity, sin, and transgression, and yet will by no means clear the guilty? It seems that we're in a little bit of a pickle. And this tension is ultimately resolved in the gospel. This tension is ultimately resolved in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ because on the cross, the mercy of God and the justice of God embrace. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ, God has exhausted his justice and wrath on the person of his son Jesus on the cross in our place so that now God can extend to you and to me all of his mercy, all of his grace, all of his kindness. And so if we want to know the heart of God, we look to Jesus Christ on the cross, dying in our place and rising again so that we can have our sins forgiven and be restored back to God. So as we are thinking ahead to this next year, I wanna, I wanna challenge you a little bit because it's New Year's, so we, we, we do that. Um, Here's my challenge, and I want you guys to challenge me too. Let's not slip into neutral, spiritually speaking. Let's press on, as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, that we may know Christ. Can we challenge each other? Can we push each other towards knowing God more in 2024? I think we can. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this passage. In this passage, we see your glory. In this passage, we come to know you more. And I pray, Lord, that the truth that you are a God who is holy that you are a God who is kind, and that you are a God who is just, 
I pray that these things would inform and enrich our relationship with you. I pray that they would not just be a a series of facts that we log away for later, but that we would recognize that these things describe the God who made us and loves us and wants to have a relationship with us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.